Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Jaskaran Sandhu, co-founder of Buzz News. Welcome back to Shortcuts. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Today on the show, Gojo Tour Star Post Star Royco. <laughs> corporate newspaper consolidation got us into this mess. Maybe corporate newspaper consolidation can get us out of it. And is India assassinating people in Canada now? And finally, a blistering journalistic expose of a junior high school. Welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to everybody by Mac Jeffrey, Sarah Petit, Marnie Erickson, Natalie Lavers, Melissa Turvet, Dana Huber, Chrisanne Daniel, and Joshua. My name is Joshua Hind, and I'm a theater designer from Toronto. If I'm honest, I've subscribed to Canada Land more than once, and not just because I wanted to double up on the subscriber swag. At one time, I felt I had a good reason to pull my subscription. Cough, Jesse, cough. But I ultimately came back because of Commons with Archie Man. It's one of Canada's best podcasts, and I wanted to hear the White Saviors. And yes, I missed listening to Jesse on Shortcuts. And sure, I could have listened for free, but if you're going to listen to independent media, you gotta pay. So I pay. Again. All right, Jessica, and I want to get right into this news that broke earlier this week. The talks are on for a merger between Torstar and Post Media. You catch this? Yeah, I saw it go around on social media yesterday. Obviously, always uh, piques interest. I would say probably the worst case scenario, our news editor, Jonathan Goldsby, remarking on Twitter that, you know, the last good daily city newspapers in Canada are the Toronto Star and the Winnipeg Free Press explicitly because they have not been consolidated by massive newspaper chains. And really, everything that we talk about in Canada land, about what's happened to the media in Canada, there are a lot of factors that go into this global trends. But in Canada, really a lot of this can be laid at the feet of Stephen Harper, who allowed foreign owners to take over post media. There were bids from domestic players for some of these papers. Like if these papers had stayed in local hands, if we hadn't allowed consolidation, if we hadn't allowed foreign ownership, a lot of this would not be happening. But yeah, here's the news. Nordstar Capital, the company which controls the Toronto Star and Metroland Media, is in talks with Post Media, the publisher of the National Post, Toronto Sun, and other daily newspapers across this country. They put out a press release. They only put out this press release because, like, for, like, security violation insurance, Post Media stock was, like, suddenly up 
by 50%. There's always weird stock activity prior to these big moves in Canadian media. Like somebody's making a buck. But yeah, that's why they came out with this. And it's a bit complicated. It looks like they're going to form like two new companies that Andrew McLeod, the CEO of PostMedia, he'll be the CEO of both of them as far as I can tell. Like they're trying to keep the Toronto Star itself, the appearance of editorial independence. And I think that's sort of what was promised to the prior owners of the Toronto Star. Like, don't worry, that'll never be sold to PostMedia. It's totally being sold to PostMedia. Nordstar will keep a 65% stake in Toronto Star, Inc. The press release doesn't say who gets the other 35%, but it's this is a merger. I, I'm, I'm assuming that it's PostMedia. But everything else, including the Hamilton Spectator, it's all going to be PostMedia Torstar, one company, Jordan Batov as publisher of The Star and Andrew McLeod as CEO of the whole shebang. Holy shit. Yeah, to your point, it almost really felt they begrudgingly put out that statement. <laughs> it's like they, they're not interested in doing it. They did not want to do it, but they begrudgingly did. Obviously, like an earthquake of sorts in the Canadian media landscape, which uh, probably stresses the importance of independent outlets in the wake of another consolidation of you know, mainstream institutional Canadian media. You want to hear some fiery rhetoric? Here's some fiery rhetoric for you. There's a cancer on Canadian journalism. The malignancy is post-media. Jaskaran, is that me, some opinionated loudmouth podcast? No. Where did I read that? I read that in the Toronto Star uh, in 2016. Uh, business columnist David Olive called post-media a cancer. And here's how he described it. He got into some detail. Canada's free press and the citizens it serves are paying a heavy price to satisfy the short-term profit-seeking of U.S. financiers who now control many of the leading originators of news in Canada's largest communities. Hedge fund investors and post media thrive on acquiring distressed properties on the cheap and milking their remaining assets. One would think that their slash-and-burn tactics at some of Canada's most important media outlets to make debt payments to offshore debt holders would be of more than slighting public interest. Instead, the post-media story has been reported as the magical thinking, listen to this part, the magical thinking behind merging two troubled newspaper chains in the expectation that one prosperous one will result. In the looking glass world of financial engineering, you can profit handsomely from an asset of steadily declining value from picking the carcass clean. That's what I read in the Toronto Star, talking about post-media. That carcass is now going to include the Toronto Star. The fucking Montreal Gazette has one senior editor left. Okay. Jonathan Goldsby also took an issue of the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, a post-media paper on like a Thursday, a random day, and just went through it. He found one original article that was written by that paper's newsroom. Like these papers don't even have physical newsrooms anymore. They have smaller staffs than, than Canada land. That's what post-media does to newspapers. Have they tried getting money from the government? <laughs> is, like, is that a solution that they've uh, exhausted or is that not on the table? Well, we also heard this week that after Facebook announced that, yeah, they will be cutting off news on Instagram and Facebook to all Canadians for all news and, you know, uh, as a result of C-18. And so having made a mess of news in Canada, Pablo Rodriguez, the heritage minister, was asked, like, what the fuck, what's next? And he said, resources will be made available. Like, I don't, I'm not going to tell you what the plan is, but if the money isn't coming from Facebook, we'll, we'll, we'll make you whole. We, we promised you cash and we're going to get it somehow, which doesn't really help those of us who refuse to take government media subsidies. Goldsby, who I'll quote again, 
He had a really good observation where he said, Postmedia makes a lot more sense when you recall that its executives were the people who helped see BlackBerry through the iPhone era. Guys like Andrew McLeod, these guys are specialists in juicing value out of dying companies. What a fucking mess. And, and yeah, I think that you could lay the original sin at Stephen Harper's feet. But, you know, you break it, you bought it. Like the Trudeau government, the original position was... We can't get involved, you know? If this is an obsolete business model, it's got to run its course. We're not going to bail out the dinosaurs. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. That's what they originally said. And then, you know, I think they got frightened by things like Rebel News and by what was happening in the States. And then I think they were lobbied heavily and they said, okay, we've switched completely and we've got three major bills. We're going to get involved in the media like never before. And it's just a few years later, look at the shape of things. I mean, it is, it is unbelievable how bad things have gotten. Yeah, this is the, uh, like another manifestation of the great debate is journalism and the the business of journalism still like this philosophical intellectual exercise of telling the news, sharing stories, and uh, aspiring to some greater good. Or is it just a pure capitalist exercise of let's just drain as much money out of this as possible? And for her mainstream players, it really does feel like it's swerving to the latter and they're just not, they're not able to figure it out. And kind of goes back to the point, I, I think the folks that are kind of still doing the more philosophical, intellectual exercise of journalism is independent media. I don't think that changes. I think that's just the nature of what we're in, the time we're in. More people are going to lean on independent media in light of things like this. Jaskaran, I ain't an intellectual and I ain't a philosopher. <laughs> not, not that you know, not that you know. Not that I know. Post media has never turned a profit and Bell Media loses money on CTV News, the number one news network in, in, in Canadian television. They lose money on it. So I don't know what, like, you know, when you hear about post media gobbling up Irving newspapers, Brunswick News, gobbling up Torstar, merging, whatever, I think you think of like a corporate behemoth that just cares about making money. They don't make money. They make money for their debt holders, but they're not actually turning a profit. Like, like I'll, I, I'm sorry to be a broken record about this, but the corporate news leaders in Canada are no longer in the news business. They are no longer trying to make money off news. They've got a series of weird schemes and subsidies and, you know, gambling operations and debt structures and stock manipulations. They're not actually in the business anymore. It's not necessarily the profit motive or, or capitalism. It's, it's corporatism that is just destroying the sector in Canada. And it's, it's grim, man. It's grim. Look, and what the cancer kills uh, first is local news. That's what's dying. And no one's telling the ground stories where they happen. That's what's missing. Uh, and it sucks because Toronto Star did that better than most. If we lose that, that's a huge detriment to Canadians. I hear you there. And, there, and there's still enough value and there's still a lot of great journalism for the Toronto Star. And I'm, I feel so bad for everybody who is uh, obviously quaking in their boots there. And you know who else I feel bad for? Like, you know, like Facebook turning off news for like Canadians, like that's so weird. Like, I don't know where else in the Western world, like you, like what's going to happen. You're going to, you're going to like try to share a news story in Facebook and it's going to say, sorry, this service is not available in your region. That doesn't really affect Canada land as a podcast company. It's not really going to hurt our traffic. You know, we saw our Facebook traffic deplete over recent years as every news company has, but you know, talking to Jeff Elgie, the publisher of village media, they rely Facebook traffic for a significant chunk of their, of their like profitable business. You run Boz News. Like how big a deal is Facebook traffic to your overall business model? 
Instagram is much more important than Facebook. Uh, you know, if you're going after a younger demographic, you know, Facebook is less relevant than I think it used to be. Uh, Instagram, Twitter are, are much more important to us. But for a lot of media outlets, uh, especially ones that kind of operate, you know, quote unquote, ethnic media, like they really rely on Facebook. Uh, you know, if you're a news outlet that's uh, targeting an older generation, you still very much rely on Facebook. You know, people get their news from social media. That's just the reality of it. Uh, whether it's Facebook or Reddit or Twitter or Instagram or whatever it may be, social media is how they capture it. They're not going to, you know, www.thestar.com and, and looking up the news of the day. It's what's being shared by their peers. And so policing that is is actually gatekeeping the news in, in a big way uh, for a lot of folks that do rely on those mediums to capture it. Are you getting any of like the Facebook deal money or the Google news no, initiative? No, I and we haven't actually pursued it in any shape or form either. So as a small news publisher, the effect of government in- intervention in this sector has been like to shut off an important source of traffic for your fledgling startup news site. Why do I sound like the angry one? If I were in your shoes, I'd be furious right now. <laughs> Maybe it's our, our expectations are leveled differently, man. I, I, I don't expect anything from this government uh, it, for them to make wise decisions that, that uh, will benefit independent media in any kind of significant way. You know what? I never wanted any benefits or any kind of handouts for media. I just like, I'm enraged when they actually like actively hurt us. That's the part that gets to me is like, you know, to, to actually be risking your money and, and, and your time on trying to start something in a very difficult sector and have your government like, oh, you built up a Facebook audience? Well, that's gone. <laughs> yeah, screw you. Look, I, I think this is just a bigger indictment of this government. It proves once again that they believe they're the smartest guys in the room and they don't do a good job of listening to stakeholders. And this is like across verticals. This is not just specific to media and they just fumble it every time and the it's a symptom of just not listening to all stakeholders here at Surrey's Guru Nanak Sikh temple, 45-year-old Hardeep Singh Nijar was shot and killed in his car right here in the parking lot. Police releasing new information about the suspects and where they may have fled. Hundreds of community members and supporters of the Khalistan movement came together. Jaskaran, what can you tell us in terms of context briefly? I'm sure there's a ton of it, but help me understand this murder, assassination. What happened? Yeah, man, how far do you want me to zoom out? Because, you know, this is this tough for, I think, someone who's not too familiar with the topic or the community to really understand and grasp what's going on here. The short of it is Hardeep Singh Nijar was a a president of a fairly sizable and um, influential Gurdwara in Surrey, which is, after Brampton, the next biggest population of six in Canada. And uh, he was also an activist involved in many different Sikh initiatives, but most recently was active in the Khalistan referendum, which is a non-binding vote being put on by the community to gauge interest and support in Khalistan, which is the independent Sikh homeland, which would be uh, located in the primarily the state of Punjab, which falls in India. Punjab also falls in Pakistan, but the Sikh community is entirely almost in the India section of Punjab. Uh, he was gunned down and shot uh, inside his car, outside of his Gurdwara that he's a president of. And according to the Sikh community, and I am one of those that also believe this, was assassinated by the Indian state. Uh, And there's many different reasons why the community believes that. And there's many different reasons why the Indian state actively interferes in the affairs of Sikh Canadians here. 
Tuscarin, you're a news publisher, but you've also been involved in these issues politically. Can you just like help us with any disclosures that the listeners might need to hear when it comes to these issues? I am very much involved on one side of these issues. Look, I'm a board member with the World Sick Organization of Canada, which is Canada's largest um, national sick advocacy organization. I was the executive director of that organization as well. I've been involved for almost over 10 years. I've actively engaged government and uh, organizations and, and other stakeholders on these topics that we're discussing here today. I'm very much a activist. I'm very much a sick advocate. Would want people to know that as we continue on here. Khalistan, is, it's a movement, right? It's, it's a movement among six for independence, for sovereignty, and it's one that has varying levels of waxes and wanes support, both either practical or more of an emotional thing. It's considered a terrorist movement by Modi's government. We have an increasingly fascistic Hindu supremacist government in India that I think sees uh, the Khalistani movement as a terrorist threat. Yeah, look, I think to start with your first point there, you know, what is the level of support for Khalistan? And I think that's a question that that comes up a lot. You know, if I was to uh, speak about ground realities here in Canada, all the largest gurdwaras in Canada, so I, I live in Brampton, so if I look at the two largest gurdwaras in this community, Brampton is home to the largest Sikh community in Canada. There are two main gurdwaras, Malton Gurdwara and Dixie Gurdwara. They both are very ardent supporters of Khalistan happen to also be the largest Gurdwaras. The largest Nagarkirtans are Khalsa Day Parades, uh, which is uh, how it's often referred to in Canada, are also the Surrey and Maltins, and both of them are very vocal in their support for Khalistan. The Khalistan referendum, so something that Hardeep Singh Nijar himself was involved with, has held a collection of votes here in Canada, primarily out here in Brampton. The one in Surrey is coming up. And in the, the votes that they held here in Brampton area, they've accumulated more than 100,000 votes. So the Khalistan movement is not a fringe movement. I want to make that very clear. This is a movement that a lot of Sikhs have a lot of opinions about. And for many Sikhs, you know, you, you reference this emotionally or politically and, and kind of a, the levels of the support may differ, but more or less every Sikh would agree that our history is one of self-determination and one of sovereignty, to the point where uh, the Jatadar of the Akaltak, so the Akaltak is the temporal seat of authority for the Sikh community. Think of uh, the Vatican, for example. It's a, not a clean one-to-one comparison, very different uh, religious belief systems. But for listeners, they'll, they'll kind of understand what the Pope is in the Vatican. The Sikh equivalent has said on record recently that if, if India was to say, okay, you can have Khalasan, we would say yes. Uh, and so there's a, there's a lot of support around Sikh sovereignty. And that is something that worries India. And what bothers India more than anything else is advocacy from the Sikh community, which highlights uh, amongst uh, many issues, the, the human rights issues and the very deep and legitimate grievances the Sikh community has against India. You know, we are people that face genocide in the state of India, still have not received justice. We are the largest diasporic community outside of India of Sikhs. And that is something that worries India a lot, and which is why they interfere quite aggressively in Canada. 
Just, Karen, using the term genocide, is that a controversial term in this context, or is that something that's sort of international community has come to that consensus? And forgive my ignorance on this bit of history. So, for example, the Ontario legislature has recognized what happened to six in the 80s and 90s as a genocide. Uh, that's a more local Canadian example. The Indian government picks and chooses when they, when they want to make that term controversial. But BJP government officials have referred to what happened to six as a genocide. Delhi uh, High Court has referenced what happened to six as a genocide. Uh, so there is a lot of precedent for that word being used, uh, both here in Canada and in India. Uh, but India does pick and choose when they want that to be controversial, uh, and they weaponize it when they need to. I think that the way that it was described to me, when I'm like, how do I get my head around the Khalistani movement? Like, is this an armed, militant, separatist movement? Is it What, what is it? And it was, it was related to me like, look, there's a lot of sympathy for this, but the sympathy levels vary a lot between people who are like ready to go to the mat for this or people who, if they were like given a ballot, would say, yeah, so sovereignty uh, is still something that I would prefer. Because we're being told, you know, by the Indian government that this is a like a, a terrorist threat. I think when people who are unfamiliar with these dynamics are trying to get their heads around it, you know, it's too easy to shrug this off as like just another foreign conflict between two warring parties somewhere else, you know? So you've got like this act of violence on Canadian soil. And then you're, I'm reading from earlier this month, you know, you mentioned these parades. There's this wild looking float in, in this uh, cultural parade. It's a community cultural parade where like uh, it's like there's like a reenactment, a depiction of this gory scene of assassination of Indira Gandhi, the former prime minister of India, where like there's a mannequin who I guess is supposed to be Gandhi wearing a white dress covered in blood with her hands up. And then there are these two other mannequins shooting her to death. And that's like part of like a fun family day outing uh, at a parade. Like help me with that one. Yeah, so uh, one of the purposes of Anagarkit then is to uh, share and celebrate Sikh history. And Sikh history is one of um, uh, a lot of martyrs and gory episodes, right? It's a people that has fought, fought for their existence. And so Indra Gandhi was assassinated by her Sikh bodyguards. And uh, it's important to understand why that was done. Indra Gandhi was the one who greenlit the invasion uh, and the attack on the Darbarsal complex, which is for Sikhs, you know, the center of their faith. That's the golden temple, right? That's uh, equivalents would be Mecca uh, for the Muslim community or uh, the Vatican for the Catholic community. And so Sikhs, you're not going to find debate within the Sikh community on whether or not uh, we should celebrate or remember the assassination of Indira Gandhi. M most Sikhs have no problem celebrating and remembering that. You know, she was a genocidal figure in our history. And so that is what is being recognized in that float. Again, in the Nagarkitan, which celebrates Sikh history. Now, there is obviously uh, you know, d debate within the community on whether a float uh, or that float in particular was appropriate or well done, but no one is debating what the float is depicting, uh, which I think is, a, is an important distinction. A happy event pretty unanimously for the community is what you're saying. 110%. The community has no qualms about Indra Gandhi being assassinated. The Sikh history is, is a you know, it's a gory, it's a gory history. We've, we've been on the, the brink of extinction multiple times in our, uh, in our history and, and have fought back multiple times. So it is a, is a history that does celebrate martyrs. It's a, it's a history that does celebrate folks who have given their lives uh, to protect uh, the faith and, and, and our people. So, and, and you'll see imagery like that everywhere. You'll see it in our gurdwaras and our places of worship. You'll see it in our homes. It's a community that is very aware of its history. 
it flares up in in the mainstream news cycle uh, from time to time, and this is one such incident. It kind of like kind of passed through the newspapers that this happened, but it happened at a particular time when we're having this national conversation about foreign interference. And I think that there's like a couple of ways that this gets processed. One is to kind of like shrug it off and be like, well, that's got nothing to do with us. Like, it seems like there are these two sides here that are battling it out. And I take it that there's nuance that's important there because there is a difference between symbolic violence and actual violence. But then there's this aspect of like, do, do these foreign governments just like think Canada's a joke? Like if, if people are ordering assassinations on Canadian soil for, you know, political killings, that doesn't show a lot of respect for rule of law or for Canadian sovereignty. And, you know, the, the communities that this affects are Canadians themselves. And this is not something that I think should necessarily be shrugged off as like other people's business. Your news site has faced foreign interference, or at least you, you have uh, accusations of foreign interference. Can you, can you talk a bit about it in, through that lens? Starting with Boz, for example, we've been censored and banned in India three times now. Two times, sorry, outright banned and censored. And we've had uh, different content censored in India uh, multiple times. And so, you know, we're obviously targeted by the Indian state. Me, myself, like, it's not something I share publicly much, but in light of events, I, I thought it might as well. I've been warned and told multiple times within community that, hey, you know, the Indian constant's asking about you. Um, or, you know, there's people, you know, asking what's Jaskaran up to. Now, I haven't got visits from CSIS and RCMP, like other Sikhs have, that have been told that there's imminent threats on their lives. Uh, but that is a reality the Sikh community faces in, in Canada. And these are, like, I'm a Canadian, I'm born and raised here, I'm a Canadian citizen. And so this is a kind of very, the excesses of Indian interference in Canada. You know, Judy Thomas uh, just recently stated, I think this was a couple of weeks ago before all these events transpired, um, and, and Judy Thomas is the uh, National Security Intelligence Advisor to Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, you know, she said that India is a, and I quote, top actor uh, for foreign interference in Canada. And that should surprise, like, does like, surprise Canadians. Top, like, top billing over Beijing, over the Chinese government. Well, that was Judy Thomas's quote, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say even if we hold it equal, like, most people will assume when, when they hear foreign interference, they assume China, they assume Russia, they assume Iran, like, they assume these non-democratic or authoritative governments that are, quote-unquote, enemies of the West, right? And, and, and people that we are in conflict with. You know, a lot of folks are surprised to hear that India is a top actor amongst those uh, types of countries. You know, that, that takes different shapes and forms. And the Sikh community is essentially a diasporic community under siege that protects itself. Uh, you know, this is not like a victim mentality, uh, you know, speech or pitch here as well, or rant. You know, we, we as a community understand that we have to protect ourselves as well because the Canadian government or law enforcement doesn't necessarily get what we're going through either. At least that's the sentiment within the community. What do you want to see from Canadian authorities and what do you want to see from Canadian conversation from Canadian media when it comes to this stuff? Look, I think from Canadian authorities, we need them to take it seriously. Like the Indian government, if what the community believes is true, and, and in fact, CSIS went around and, and flagged for multiple individuals that are involved with Sikh activism. All these folks have a similar background. They're all involved with Sikh activism that are facing Im imminent threats of assassination. And CSIS and RCP went and talked to these people. They know what's happening but then they're not offering any protection, right? So you're leaving it to communities to protect themselves, which is also like, and from a purely policy perspective, not probably a good thing either. Like you want this, if, if you believe that the RCP and CSIS and the state has a duty to protect citizens, it needs to include the Sikh community facing threats from a foreign government from India or what are legally protected rights. So freedom of speech, freedom of advocacy, none of these people that are under imminent threat have faced extradition notices. None of them have faced any criminal proceedings. None of them have faced 
any uh, serious allegations within Canada. And India has a history of trumping up and making baseless allegations. And Hardeep Singh Nijjar was a victim of that as well. The absolutely base, baseless, almost comical allegations from the Indian government for his assassination. So we need Canada to kind of respond politically. They need to respond to India when they make these baseless accusations. We need security forces and police uh, to provide protection, real protection, that goes above and beyond just, hey, FYI, you're under imminent threat, because that's what's happening right now. They're not offering anything beyond that. We need our politicians to grow a spine and actually be stern when challenging foreign interference. We need a public inquiry into public interference. We need to make this stuff public. We need to put it into the public domain. We need to know, we need to have Canadian citizens aware of what's happening to their fellow citizens. Again, we're Canadians at the end of the day that are of sick of heritage, sick background, and care about sick issues because that's our faith. When a place of worship where families and kids come has to deal with a very real possibility of murderous people uh, waiting for certain individuals to come out of a place of worship, I think it's reasonable for people to expect protection from, from authorities. And having the hit happen at the Gurdwara was also to send a message that you as a Sikh community are not even safe in your spaces. And that is a very conscious decision, yeah, at least in the community's opinion. And so, you know, the community's response to this, I think, is also noteworthy. His funeral this past weekend, you know, saw thousands attend. It was a, it was a huge event for Surrey. That was undercovered. That for like that was a major event. That when I saw pictures of it, I'm like, oh, okay. That why, why was that not a bigger deal? That's that was massive. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff has been undercovered, right? Even the calls on referendum in Brampton, the vote that happened here, there, there was it shut down city streets. There was an estimated hundred thousand people showed up just to the Brampton vote of the calls on referendum. I don't think any mainstream outlet covered it while it was happening. And I saw with my own eyes, like it shut down intersection after intersection. People were walking kilometers to go vote because there, no, there was no way to get in anymore. Any other community would have an event like that, I think it would get covered. Now, Hardeep Singh Nijar's funeral itself, uh, you had an impromptu organic vibe to it. It became like a state funeral. Like they shut down streets and there was a large procession to the funeral home. It was a massive event that was larger than anyone anticipated. But it speaks to, again, I think, the Sikh community's resilience in face of this threat. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, 
pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Jaskarin, we duly note stories that might otherwise go overlooked. Do you have something to point out today? Yeah, sticking to the theme of uh, the segment we just did, the Samara Center, which is an important institution that looks at uh, you know the health of democracy in Canada, just released a report, a Sambot report, looking at toxicity during this last municipal election cycle. And the findings are actually pretty alarming. Uh, and I think that report deserves a lot more attention from our press, the kind of identity attacks that politicians are, uh, or candidates even, are open to, kind of threats that they face, it really does hinder the ability to attract really good candidates. Get specific here. What happened? I missed this. What was the, what was the attack? So I, I can give you my example. I am a uh, failed municipal candidate mm-hmm. from this last election cycle, and I was actually the most targeted city council candidate for uh, hate and abuse. According uh, to Samara? According, according to Samara's Sambot report. You seem like a nice guy. Why do people hate you? You know, Matt, people hate bald guys. I don't know what to tell you. No, but most of the attacks that I got were identity-based, and it was uh, a direct relation to my advocacy in sick community issues. And it was an example of foreign interference. Uh, the attacks were coming primarily from Indian bots, sock puppet, and user accounts. And uh, that is just... One example of what candidates are faced with when they decide to run and uh, opening up the the conversation about what are we going to do to continue to fight hate and toxicity in our democratic and political landscape. And sorry, what were you running for? I was running for city council in Brampton. India is interfering at that level, at the city council level in Canadian politics? Oh, 110%. Like it's the proof is in the pudding. People that would actually publicly state they're supporting me would also get attacked I had one old lady message me on the side. I tweeted support for you, but then I deleted it because I started getting attacked. But I want you to know that I still support you. (laughs) So I have a multiple cute stories like that, but it is a reality. And you'll be surprised that foreign interference happens at the municipal level. It also happens in nominations and leadership races. Uh, It's it's everywhere. One might say, I don't know, there's a crazy novel idea. I want full credit for it. Perhaps a public inquiry is needed. I don't know. Duly noted. All right, I have one. This is something, uh, a follow-up on last week's episode. Last week's episode, I had Ethan Cox on, and we were discussing the uh, the tragic story of the people on the submarine. And Ethan Cox said that the incredible expense that was taken to try to rescue these people, you know, maybe they should be charged if they are if they are rescued. And they, they, have, they of course, tragically died. But he, he pointed out that there are certain instances where if people were really reckless and endangering themselves and massive expenses were required to come and find them, sometimes they are charged for the search and rescue. And we got some emails back from people who do the search and rescue. And they said, don't spread that around because there are people who like are stranded in the wilderness who don't ask for help because they're afraid of getting a bill and they're actually putting their lives in danger. And we want them to ask for help and we want them to know they're not going 
to get charged for that because people have died because of a fear of being billed for their own search and rescue. Now, there's no correction necessary. Ethan wasn't wrong. There are certain limited instances in Quebec where you might be charged if you recklessly endangered yourself and there was a huge search and rescue operation. I would argue you should still not hesitate to ask uh, to put out all flares and signals. But the emails we got specifically were from BC. If you are stranded in BC, it doesn't matter what dumbass thing you were doing, backcountry skiing or skiboarding, or you put yourself in the path of an avalanche, or I don't know what kind of jackassery you're up to, you're not going to be uh, financially on the hook if you need help. Uh, <laughs> please ask for help if you have the means to do so. I, I wouldn't want to be uh, involved in putting out information that would stop people from requesting the search and rescue that they may need. Duly noted. At a middle school outside Toronto, an anonymous letter written by a teacher describes an atmosphere of violence and indignity. Students will throw empty cups at teachers' heads, and students have defecated on the floor of washrooms and rubbed their feces on the wall. Yuck. Uh, wow. What? Just classic, classic school, school things. <laughs> I was a class clown. I rubbed their feces on the wall? I actually knew about this or some of this. We got a letter. It was signed. I'm not going to say who it was signed by because I think they, they would probably lose their job. But we got an email on May 18th about this school from Tompkin Road Middle School, Peel District School Board, uh, Mississauga, suburb of Ontario. And it was really describing like, this is like 11, 12, 13-year-olds. This is a junior high middle school and seemed to be from a teacher who was telling us, help us. Like sending a letter to the media, help us. This school is out of control. Kids are like beating each other up and, and taking videos of it and sharing it with each other. There's a series of allegations, blowing in teachers' ears, swearing at teachers. There's just like a list of things. It's certainly an interesting story, but we had a newsroom conversation about it. Like, how would we possibly go about verifying this? You're talking about like 11 and 12 year allegations of things that 11 and 12-year-olds did. Like, like are we going to go investigate whether kids did these things? And some of the things are so specific that even if we leave the kids' names out of it, which of course media would, people in that community would probably know in certain instances which kid you're talking about. Uh, whether they did it or not, that's the kid who was accused of throwing this thing at a teacher's head or smearing their feces on the wall. So I don't know, while we were having that conversation, it turned moot, we got scooped by reality. This uh, Twitter account, R. Michael Tepper, he said, this morning I received this letter from a teacher at a Mississauga school. I have verified the existence and identity of its author and its authenticity. I don't know how he verified it's authentic. Does that mean the allegations are authentic? In any event, a very similar letter, not exactly the same, but a very similar letter was shared on Twitter. Cat was out of the bag, and then media reports followed, uh, reporting on allegations that kids were doing this at this school. And nobody actually doing the investigation to find out whether or not this happened or not until earlier this week when the National Post reported it out. We're all traumatized. The inside story of a middle school in crisis. And I, you know, I don't have any qualms about this investigation by Joseph Breen. It seems like uh, a fairly even-handed job was done in trying to determine, talking to teachers. I don't know if Breen was able to get in touch with the accused students or not. That's really unclear from the piece. And, you know, the privacy of the students, no students are named. But, you know, I think, again, you could probably infer if you're part of this community, which students are being talked about here. You can't ignore that, like, even though this was like a pretty straight ahead piece of reporting, the context is of like a school that's too woke, that refuses to discipline kids. And, you know, the National Post has an ideological bent in terms of which stories it chooses to report out. 
I don't know what to think about this. You know, uh, Breen, like he, he covered it and, and covered some of the context. Uh, and I'll quote here. There is an element of racial politics in the board's approach to, to discipline. Some, but not all, the students involved in this misbehavior at Tompkins Road are black. Teachers say the students requiring intervention are of diverse ethnicities, but the administration is keenly alive to the risk of perpetuating anti-black racism through its responses. You know, and the narrative is the school won't discipline. They won't suspend kids, and these problematic kids are ruining it for everybody. But there is a wider context that Breen gets into. You know, there are studies that show that there's systemic racism and discipline in schools. Black students as young as junior kindergarten have been suspended in the Peel Board. Black students at the high school level have been punished at a level twice as high as non-black students. Jaskaran, I am I am unfamiliar with like news reports, exposés on the behavior of 11-year-olds. What what do you think about this? Yeah, this is a uh, this is a tough one to navigate as a Peel District School Board parent. Uh, this is uh, concerning on multiple levels. Uh-huh. You know, and, and I think the biggest criticism here is, especially from a school's perspective, that there are some privacy kind of rules and guidelines in place where you you can't kind of expose these kids to harm. And we got to remember what that these are kids. You know, kids do dumb things. Sure, Jesse, you and I have our share of stories when we were young kids in school. At, at like 11, 12, 13 years old, I was an idiot. You got to give a chance for kids to grow out of that. But having said that, you know, the teachers, if they have a story to tell here, like that's newsworthy that you have a school in trouble and you have an administration that's kind of turning a blind eye to it or not doing an effective job. And you're able to get enough, you know, in this case, anonymous sources where you can corroborate what was in the letter you know, maybe there's an argument that you have a duty to report on it as well. Like there's there's a system that's broken that impacts all of our kids. Like I don't know, maybe this is happening at my my kid's school as well. I I don't know. Well, I you know you know forget the due diligence part, the corroboration, because uh, while we were twiddling our thumbs uh, debating the ethics of reporting this out or not, they just went live on social media, and that was what actually prompted action. They got what they wanted. You know, the teachers had tried to uh, deal with the principal. They'd even tried to go over the principal's head and talk to the superintendent. Uh, and it wasn't until they made this an issue on social media and then it got picked up as a result of it going viral on social media. Then the principal lost their job, the superintendents at the school, uh, the actual the board stepped up and is doing something about this. And so it was, you know, maybe this is a, a happy story of them, you know, taking measures into their own hands and making an impact. And yet, you know, one one thing that you find through Breen's reporting is that some of these accusations people say are not true. And I do wonder about, like, if that accusation is linked in people's minds to one kid, and this is being nationally reported on. And then, of course, it goes through the opinion mill, and Rex Murphy comes out with this column, and <laughs> my God, uh, you know, here's Rex Murphy. The board says it is committed to cultivating safe and inclusive learning and working environments for students and staff. Just what is this? It is the plasticine, flavorless, static verbiage that every school board pumps out from its vast cliché vat to stuff every one of the flaccid, sterile, yawn incantations it issues to cover some patent malfeasance, misfeasance, disorder, or parent complaint. Safe, inclusive environments, the tag stickers of the woke. And he just goes on and on. He's taking issue with their language at great length. All they're saying is they're trying to cultivate safe and inclusive learning and working environments for students and staff. That's pretty clean and clear use of language to me. Yeah, well, the grand irony is, is Rex is the one using like it, Holy doing shit. his best to sound smart. From the vast sewer of bureaucraties. Like, it just gets politicized horribly. And like, yeah, these, these are kids. And, you know, I know how rumors go around schools. Like, I'm sure some of this stuff has happened. But, you know, like, oh, I heard that so-and-so said this to a teacher and... 
like what, it, what is the process here? Like the, these little things can have such reverberations through people's lives. You know, when you get accused of doing something as a kid and when you get the media involved with it, it can just sort of amplify the damage and this idea that you're like public enemy number one. I wasn't smearing feces on the walls as, as, as best I can recall, you know, memory yeah. is foggy. But, you know, I remember when I got into trouble and, and when I was, you know, sometimes I deserved it and sometimes I was treated unfairly. And the idea that authorities are treating you unfairly when you're like 11 and trying to sort your shit out, no pun intended, you know, like <laughs> if that's in the National Post and Rex Murphy is like dunking on you, uh, I, I, like there, there's like, I don't know, when you're dealing with kids, I get pretty squinchy. Yeah, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough space to navigate. Like if it's a teacher-led rebellion – and this was just the escalation of their protests, and they felt that they had no other way to go but the press. Now, it it says something that's a, that maybe this is a grander indictment of you know the board of the superintendents uh, that ignored the principal not doing a good job, because at the same time, you know, maybe the environment was terrible for these other kids. This is almost a relief of sorts uh, that something's actually finally happening and being done. Yeah, but I think you used the word environment. And that, that, that sounds like woke bureaucraties to me there, just going. <laughs> that is Shortcuts. Thank you for joining me. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. You can email me. I'm at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. Jaskaran, where can people find you and your work? Jaskaran Sandhu underscore on Twitter. Uh, and then you can always check Boz News Org on Twitter as well. That is where everything goes up. That is B-A-A-Z dot org. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Theme music is by so-called syndication by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. This week on The Backbench, Matea Roach interviews Aaron O'Toole. He stopped by our studios and Matea put the screws to him. It is definitely worth a listen. Matea Roach and Aaron O'Toole, check this out. Listen, if you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, we want to give you things. Premium access to all of our shows, no ads, early releases, bonus content, our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. But the reason to support us is because you will become a part of the solution to the widening journalism crisis in this country. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come and join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for supporting Canada Land. Thank you.